You're listening to the N2K Space Network. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Well, Alice, it has been a week, hasn't it? Uh, Yeah, just a bit, Maria, it has. First, we had the inaugural launch of the ULA's Vulcan Centure. Then there was the roller coaster of the astrobotic Peregrine Lunar Lander updates. We're so sorry, little bird. I know. And then NASA pushed back their Artemis missions. And there have been an abundance of launches, both here in the U.S. and around the world. And then today we have a bunch from Japan and China. I'm exhausted. (laughs) Yeah, thank goodness we're about to go into a three-day weekend in the U.S. Today is January 12th, 2024. I'm Maria Varmazes. I'm Alice Carruth, and this is T Minus. Japan launches its IGS Optical 8 spy satellite. The Gravity One vehicle has a successful inaugural launch in China. NASA scales back its focus on space-based solar power. And our guest today is Daniel Perez Grande, CEO and co-founder of NI Space on a new palm-sized propulsion system. It's fascinating stuff, so stay with us for the second half of the show. And let's dive into our Friday Intel briefing, shall we? We're continuing our theme this week with good news in global space following earlier setback announcements in the U.S. Japan's workhorse launch vehicle, the H-2A, lifted off from Tanegashima Space Center Friday morning, Japan time. The payload, a spy satellite called the Information Gathering Satellite, or IGS Optical 8, well, we don't know much else about it, aside from its existence, given the nature of the payload. The Mitsubishi Heavy Industries-built H-2A is being eminently retired. Today's launch was one of its last. The plan is for its successor, the H-3, to take over launches for Japan from there. And quick recap, you might remember the H-3's test launch in March 2023 unfortunately failed after stage separation. The second stage didn't ignite, and JAXA had to order the rocket to self-destruct, also causing the loss of the H-3's payload, the Earth Observation Satellite Daiichi-3. 
So here's hoping that the next test launch scheduled for next month has a better outcome. Now shifting our focus over to space activities in China, at around 4pm Beijing time today, up in low Earth orbit, the Tianzhou-6 cargo spacecraft successfully separated from the Tiangyong space station. Tianzhou-6 had carried supplies for the Taikonauts and the space station, including spacesuits, maintenance components and propellant. According to the China Manned Space Agency, the cargo spacecraft, its job now done, is headed for re-entry and disposal in a designated safe zone in the southern Pacific Ocean. And China has seen the debut launch of a new rocket this week. The Gravity One vehicle, built by Chinese company Orion Space, lifted off the deck of a ship stationed in the Yellow Sea on Thursday. The vehicle transported three Yunyao-1 commercial weather satellites into their planned orbit. The company declared the inaugural launch a huge success. And anecdotally, the Gravity One launch was visually spectacular. The cloud it kicked up made the whole thing look like a volcano erupting. Definitely take a look at the video if you can. Awesome. Heading to Europe now and delays with the Vega Sea rocket have the European Space Agency looking at alternative transporters for a Copernicus satellite. The director of ESA's Earth Observation said the agency and the European Commission will decide in the near future whether to switch the Sentinel-1C radar imaging satellite from a Vega Sea launch to a SpaceX Falcon 9. Sentinel-1C is part of the Copernicus Earth Observation Program, jointly run by ESA and the European Commission. I can't blame them for heading to the US from Europe. I jumped ship long ago. (laughs) SpaceWorks, in partnership with Assured Access to Space, known as AATS, is seeking proposals that will advance the US Space Force's digital transformation, hardware modernization, and operational enhancement of current and future spaceports. According to the Space Force's press release, AATS aligns space launch deltas with launch acquisition programs, fostering close cooperation in missions expanding beyond launch to include on-orbit space mobility and logistics. AATS is looking for rapidly deployable improvements to the spaceport's foundational elements. These initial successes will pave the way for a scalable infrastructure, accelerating the Space Force into the advanced digital age and increasing launch capacity. The small business innovation research contracts under offer are worth up to $1.9 million each for IT infrastructure upgrades at the eastern and western launch ranges. Check out the link in our show notes for more details. Axiom's AX3 mission is heading to the International Space Station next week with the first all-European commercial crew and is taking with it an abundance of research experiments. Many of more than the two dozen experiments heading to low-Earth orbit will focus on life sciences – The Sanford Stem Cell Institute at the University of California, San Diego, is sending two investigations that continue to build on stem research conducted on previous Axiom missions, as well as previous investigations sponsored by the International Space Station's National Lab. For one project, the research team will study tumor organoids in microgravity to identify early cancer warning signs to better predict and treat the disease. The other investigation will evaluate changes in astronauts' blood enzymes during and after spaceflight to better understand their role in health and disease. The results could help identify new therapies and new ways to target and treat cancer, potentially during the pre-cancer stage. Who says space doesn't improve life here on Earth? Not us. Now, picture the first man on the moon, Neil Armstrong. He took one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. But one thing Neil could not do is kneel. 
<laughs> nice pun, Alice. I like that. Thanks. <laughs> and that was because his spacesuit could not allow that kind of movement. Not a problem anymore, says Axiom, who are designing the next generation spacesuits that NASA astronauts will wear when they land on the moon no earlier than fall 2026. The Axiom Extravehicular Mobility Unit, also known as AxEMU, has been created to provide increased flexibility, greater protection to withstand the harsh environment, and specialized tools to accomplish exploration needs and expand scientific opportunities. Using innovative technologies and a flexible design, these spacesuits will enable more exploration of the lunar surface than ever before. Spacesuits, now with kneeling. Will wonders never cease? <laughs> NASA is scaling back its focus on space-based solar power. A new report from NASA's Office of Technology Policy and Strategy, known as OTPS, considered the potential of a space-based solar power system that could begin operating in 2050. Based on that timeline, the report found that space-based solar power would be more expensive than terrestrial sustainable alternatives, although these costs could fall if current capability gaps can be addressed. The report shows that emissions from space-based solar power could be similar to those from terrestrial alternative power sources, but it noted that this issue requires more detailed assessments. So the space agency is pulling back its resources, for now, until proof of concept that is commercially viable is found. I'm bummed about that one, I'll admit. And it's X-59 reveal day. NASA is rolling <laughs> NASA is rolling out the red carpet for the experimental supersonic jet designed alongside Lockheed Martin's secretive skunk works division. The one-of-a-kind X-59 Quest, which stands for Quiet Supersonic Technology, by the way, is potentially industry-shifting and aims to carry people at supersonic speeds without the sonic booms. The vehicle is designed to collect data to help NASA provide regulators with the information needed to establish an acceptable commercial supersonic noise standard to lift the ban on commercial supersonic travel over land. You can go back and watch the live reveal, which streamed at 4 p.m. Eastern. That concludes our roundup of today's stories. As always, you'll find links to further reading on all the stories we've mentioned in our show notes. We've added a few extra for you today. An opinion piece on how the US replaced Russia's RD-180 engine strengthening competition. A blog from Australia's space agency on the graduation of one of their astronauts. And an announcement of the winners of the Space Force's Polaris Awards. They're all at space.n2k.com and click on this episode title. Hey, T-Minus crew, tune in tomorrow for T-Minus Deep Space, our show for extended interviews, special editions, and deep dives with some of the most influential professionals in the space industry. And tomorrow we have Danielle Perez Grande talking about electrospray technology for micropropulsion systems. It is super, Ooh. super cool. Now check it out while you're recovering from a busy start to the new year or chipping away at those New Year's resolutions that you've totally not abandoned already. T-minus Deep Space on Saturday. You really don't want to miss it. And we have one additional programming note for you. Monday is a federal holiday here in the US. It's Martin Luther King Jr. Day, the anniversary of his birthday. As such, we here at T-Minus and all of N2K are taking the day off. So we won't have a daily update for you this Monday, but we will be running a special program in the podcast feed. We wish everyone stateside celebrating a pleasant three-day weekend and we'll be back to our daily updates on Tuesday.
The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. ENI Space has designed a palm-sized propulsion option for future space missions. The electrospray technology is being developed as a cost and mass-effective method of propelling CubeSats and other small satellites. For the first time in Europe, this ionic liquid-based electrospray propulsion system has achieved more than 400 hours of continuous operation. And I spoke with ENI Space co-founder and CEO, Daniel Perez Grande, who gave me an overview of the company. ENI is a space mobility company. Um, our core products are around ion propulsion or electropropulsion, as people know it uh, in, in the field. Um, but we're not just a propulsion company. We, we like to say that, uh, you know, since we have a lot of core know-how around propulsion, around uh, flight dynamics, around maneuvering in space. Um, there was a lot of, when, when we started the company, there was really a lot of uh, pain points that we were seeing in the industry that could be solved by bringing that knowledge into uh, basically satellite builders. So again, we do propulsion, but we're not just a propulsion company. We are actually creating an ecosystem of products, um, both hardware and software, um, to to really uh, uh, streamline as much as possible the every aspect in the mission related to propulsion. And in fact, because propulsion can be quite critical for uh, uh, for any any space mission that's that's worth its name, basically, um, you really need to start looking into it as early as possible in the mission. So we have a software that can help you uh, during your mission analysis and definition, you know, can help you select the right propulsion system, can help you understand your propulsive requirements. And we're also going to start developing this year a software for operations focused on space mobility. So I like to make the analogy that, you know, if you're building a spacecraft, if you're building a satellite, right, you're not going to go and tell like the rocket launcher what's the best trajectory to take, because that's a completely different field, right? But you do have to integrate a propulsion system in your satellite, and you do have to um, uh, then, you know, choose what are the, the best maneuvers for that, right? So we want to help those spacecraft builders, those spacecraft operators, uh, with or core know-how, which is related to propulsion, to to carry out those 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 operations. So in that sense, we we're able to kind of really, you know, join uh, or or help our clients really at the beginning of their missions, all the way towards the end of the mission. Hmm. Well, that's a fascinating uh, proposition there. Um, so tell me a little bit about what makes you guys different. Uh, so I saw the word miniaturization in there. Um, <laughs> this is sort of a little taste of that. Tell me more about all that. That's really neat. Yeah. So, um, you know, when when we started about five years ago, I think CubeSats, right, were all the rage. Everybody was like trying to do CubeSats. There were people doing even Pico satellites, which were smaller than than, than CubeSats, right? And, and there's a lot of like business models being built around that. I think Planet very uh, famously, you know, kind of has sent up something like 450 uh, CubeSats out there, like on the, on, on the doves, right? And I think people are now moving towards larger things. Um, but at the time, 
there was a lot of interest in, in miniaturization. And in fact, I have to tell you that the miniaturization of particularly electropropulsion systems, because chemical propulsion systems are a little bit different, unfortunately, because they consume quite a lot of propellant, you can't really miniaturize them that much because at the end, you still need to carry that propellant, that minimum amount of propellant so that you can um, uh, you can actually do your mission. Yeah, yeah. exactly, so you can do <laughs> yeah. your stuff, right? Uh, yeah. But electropropulsion was actually you know brought into as a technology because it saves a lot of mass. But when you start miniaturizing those propulsion systems, traditionally, those electropropulsion systems, particularly those based on plasmas, so uh, people might recognize Hall effect thrusters or gridded ion thrusters, unfortunately, the efficiency of these systems just, just, just goes really low. It, it just, it, it's basically, we joke internally that they're really expensive light bulbs. Um, and this is, I'm, I'm probably going to get a lot of people out there uh, mad at me for saying this, but <laughs> but you look at them and they look they look really cool. You have your plasma beam out there. It's ionized. So it's almost like looking at, at one of those like cool LEDs or whatever, but you're not really generating that much thrust. Um, so puffs, and, right? Like little, yeah, it's it, yeah, like, it's, yeah. yeah, exactly. It, it looks, it glows. It looks really cool. Kind of like this bluish glow, but, but um, at low powers, you're just not, not very efficient. Um, which is, which is, by the way, the 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 main KPI for electropropulsion, right? Efficiency. So, um, you know, we uh, we came out of university. We 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 didn't have a propulsion that we had to like, you know, kind of a, a legacy propulsion that we we wanted to commercialize. So we had the freedom to just look into what are the best best technologies out there um, to 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 work. And we found one that was actually it's very interesting. Actually, it was it was developed originally in the 70s by NASA. They were called at the time they were called colloid thrusters. So it was basically using a mixture of salts and liquids. So the liquids became conductive, and through electric fields, you could extract those charged uh, molecules, accelerate them on a, under an electric field, and, and shoot them out and generate thrust. And this was originally developed back in the 70s. At the time, the, the let's say these systems were, you know, where they shine is in that miniaturization. And back then, satellites were huge, right? So it wasn't, you, you just couldn't do anything with these systems. And then in the 2000s at MIT, there were a couple of professors, actually one Mexican and one Spanish, which kind of like started looking back into, into these type of technologies. And I think the the word that was kind of coined at the time was electrospray, which has actually been used as, as a different technology for, for other, in, in other fields. Um, and, and there's actually some, some Nobel prizes associated to electrosprays as well. Um, but you can actually very efficiently shoot out these these ions. And the the core, uh, uh, let's say, of these technologies is that instead of using these plasmas, these really nice glowing plasmas, which unfortunately at low powers are very inefficient in terms of propulsion, you're using a propellant. In our case, uh, we call it a uh, an ionic liquid or a molten salt. So if, it's, it's as if you had basically table tabletop salt, right? But instead of being solid, it was liquid. And if you if you coat uh, with that salt, basically a, a particular geometrical arrangement, which is or what we call the emitter, and you put an electric field on that, you start shooting out ions. And those are the ions that are generating thrust. Um, and, and the really cool thing about that is that in order to do this, you actually need to go down to the micro scale and even down to the nanoscale. So these emitters that I'm talking about, when we manufacture them, we use technologies from the semiconductor industry. So the same technologies that you're using for microfabrication of microchips, we use those to sculpt these geometrical uh, structures that help you concentrate the electric field and start shooting out those ions from the uh, from the molten salt. Um, and we use that those microtechnologies and those nanotechnologies in order to to achieve these these very compact and very small propulsion systems. And in fact, they are so small that they they you know basically you can hold them in your hand. it's it's a it's a propulsion system that fits on the palm of your hand. 
It's a pocket rocket, if you want to use that that phrase. Uh, <laughs> that's dangerous, and, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's true. That's true. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah. Uh, but but and and in fact, the first propulsion system that we made, uh, the one, the first one that went up, which went up on the Firefly Alpha Two mission a couple of years, uh, end of twenty twenty two, was actually not even on a CubeSat. It was actually on a Pico satellite. I mean, we can make it that small. And the reason for doing that was because we wanted to really explore how small could we go, how small can we make this technology. Because in the same way as microchips, where you're generating, you're basically manufacturing hundreds of them or whatever, right? The, the good thing about this technology is you can manufacture these kind of like single propulsion units, and you, then you can add more or less depending on how much thrust you actually need for your mission, right? And, and that efficiency is going to be independent of the amount of emitters that you add to your propulsion system. So we have a propulsion system that is focused on miniaturization thanks to this electrospray technology, which is built with micro and nanotechnology. But the what the key characteristic, aside from the fact that it's extremely efficient at low powers, is that it's also customizable. We can we choose the number of electrospray emitters, we choose the amount of propellant that you're going to be carrying to orbit. That means that we can cater particularly to the requirements of our uh, clients, both from their uh, mission and platform perspective. And I'd like to add that, in fact, we've also built other products that help us do that. So we now have a software, which is uh, actually our first product on the market. It's called 360. It's a space uh, mobility and mission analysis software. And what that software allows us to do is to basically look at your problem, look at your mission, and help you decide Listen, if you want to go for a chemical propulsion system, you can also do that. The software enables you to study those kinds of systems. But if you want to go with us, we can tell you exactly what configuration of the propulsion system you're going to need and the best one that, to, to fit your mission and platform. My goodness. One of those on its own would be impressive, but the fact that you're doing many of those is is, is quite a lot. That that is super cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's 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 you know it's one of these things where I'm a big science fiction geek, and you know like on on all those movies when you see like you know uh, something that resembles like a spacecraft, and then you see the propulsion system, and you're like, this doesn't look like any propulsion system that I've ever seen in my life, right? It's not a rocket. It doesn't have you know whatever. The first time I saw a SEM, so a scanning electron microscope image of or micro uh, propulsion emitters, right, or electrospray emitters, which have to be imaged at the micro scale because otherwise you can't see them. I thought, this doesn't look like anything like any propulsion system that I've ever seen, right? It's So it was a big kind of like sci-fi geeky moment for me because it was like, this is kind of science fiction a little bit, you know? Like you, you, you could see it and you wouldn't imagine that that's ever going to be used for propulsion, but we are generating thrust in our lab and, and uh, hopefully in the future and, and, and many, uh, many satellite platforms out there. We'll be right back. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Welcome back. 
And okay, imagine with me for a second, you're at the top of a mountain peak and you can see another one way, way off in the distance. And you think you might see another mountain climber at its peak, but you aren't sure. Maybe it's a trick of the light. So you just act on instinct and do what a lot of people probably would in this situation. You start waving and shouting, hello over there. And many a sci-fi novel and movie has been penned about humanity waving hi to unknown alien life by kind of doing just that. Shouting hi to that metaphorical distant mountaintop through space probes, Star Trek the motion picture, or radio signals, contact, even if that high wasn't necessarily on purpose. But what if it was? The plaques on the pioneers and the golden records on the voyagers are there in hopes that maybe some sentient beings in far-off space will see them. That's kind of a passive way of doing things, isn't it? Why wait for those spacecraft to be stumbled upon? And that is the question the tourism board of Lexington, Kentucky asked when they beamed a coded bitmap via infrared laser to TRAPPIST-1 in what they've coined the first interstellar tourism ad. I just love this story. (laughs) This is wild. They chose TRAPPIST-1 as their ad target because it's relatively close by and it's in the Goldilocks zone of habitability from the star it orbits, meaning it could maybe harbor life. And if that life is sentient and can receive that coded bitmap image from Lexington, Kentucky, when it arrives in 2063, well, they will see a black-and-white bitmap tourism ad showing the rolling blue hills of Kentucky, kinda, the chemical diagrams for water and ethanol, which are the elements of Kentucky bourbon, and for dopamine because Kentucky is fun— And one human flanked by two horses, a nod to Lexington being the horse capital of the galaxy. Their words, not mine. The hope is that this beamed image will entice the residents of TRAPPIST-1 to spend their next summer holiday in Lexington, Kentucky, because who could resist the siren song of horses and booze? Honestly, I cannot wait to read the speculative fiction about extraterrestrials interpreting or misinterpreting this image. Oh my God, this is brilliant, honestly. Well, that's it for T-minus for January the 12th, 2024. For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.in2k.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at space at in2k.com or submit the survey in the show notes. Your feedback ensures we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like T-Minus are part of the daily routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, from the Fortune 500 to many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at N2K.com. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth. Mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester, with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Jen Iben. Our VP is Brandon Karp. And I'm Maria Varmazis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>